From Silicon Valley to Wall Street, the promise and perils of artificial intelligence are playing out on the world stage. But what will the next phase of AI adoption look like? Which companies from big tech to startups will dominate? And where do the risks and unintended consequences lie? I'm Emily Chang. Join me at Bloomberg Tech in San Francisco, May 9th, to answer many of the industry's burning questions. Alongside SNAP's Evan Spiegel, Xbox president Sarah Bond, OpenAI's Brad Lightcap, top researcher Dr. Fei-Fei Li of Stanford, and many more. More details and just a few tickets left at Bloomberg.com slash TechSF. If you're actually successful at preventing a pandemic, it looks like you're not doing anything because nothing happens. A pandemic doesn't happen. It's The Big Take from Bloomberg News and iHeartRadio. I'm Wes Kosova. Today, how we're preparing or not preparing for the next global pandemic. The coronavirus pandemic may not be over. Just look at the deadly surge in China right now. But in the U.S. and many other parts of the world, it's no longer as front of mind. And if we're all breathing a tentative sigh of relief, virologists and public policy officials are already starting to look ahead to the next pandemic and making sure we don't get caught so flat-footed when, not if, it happens again. So how do we prepare to fight off a possible threat we know nothing about when we're still struggling to keep on top of the one that's right in front of us? Here to answer that question is Dr. Angela Rasmussen. She's a virologist at the University of Saskatchewan's Vaccine and Infectious Disease Organization. And she has spent years studying the emergence of avian flu, Ebola, and of course, COVID-19. Dr. Rasmussen, thanks so much for being here. Thanks so much for having me, Wes. Angie, as someone who thinks about pandemics a lot, I'm going to ask you maybe an unfair question just to start. We're not done with this one yet, but where do you think the next one comes from? Well, I mean, I think the next one probably comes from someplace similar to where this one came from, and that is uh, our increasing interactions, increasing encroachment on animals, on wild spaces, um, in places where people either haven't been before or in places where we're using the land potentially in different ways, interacting with nature in different ways. Now, this pandemic started likely due to zoonotic spillover at a market in Wuhan, China, where uh, live animals were being sold. But this can happen in many, many different scenarios. So where people are in contact with animals, um, whether that be through animal sales, raising animals, farming, those types of activities, or just clearing land, disrupting ecosystems, driving animals from where they live into new places and coming into contact with people. I really do think that that is where the next pandemic is going to come from. And that's really where all of the pandemics that we've been experiencing are coming from. So we are seeing viruses increasingly emerging. You use this expression, zoonotic transmission. Can you explain exactly what that is? 
Zoonotic transmission or zoonotic spillover refers to a virus or any kind of infectious disease being transmitted from an animal host into a human host. Now, that's probably how this pandemic got started. Myself and other colleagues have been involved in research that really that's the only explanation that fits the evidence that we have. But zoonotic spillover really refers to that virus, which was not previously in humans, coming from its animal host and getting into the human population and spreading from there. You know, we think about pandemics as being these fairly rare things. Pandemics are actually fairly common. Certainly in virus emergence and epidemics are very, very common. And it's, you know, not always novel viruses. That is sort of infrequent compared to other viruses that we know about. But for example, in 2009, we had an H1N1 influenza pandemic. We have influenza pandemics roughly every 10 to 30 years. So they happen a lot more frequently than people realize. They can be less disruptive than this particular pandemic has been really globally. An epidemic can be, it might not spread around the world, but it can still be incredibly disruptive regionally. Um, and it actually can cause global disruption. So SARS coronavirus 1, when it emerged, uh, was for the most part restricted to East Asia, and then it did come over here to Canada, but uh, nonetheless caused huge disruptions in things like global travel, cost a lot of money, harms the global economy. So certainly something doesn't even have to be technically a pandemic to cause problems around the world and to really impact the global community. So you've described how the next pandemic is likely to emerge. Do you anticipate that it could be a deadlier pandemic, a deadlier virus than the one that we've, you know, just lived through? I mean, that's certainly possible. And, you know, I think that this pandemic has shown us that a virus doesn't actually have to have a catastrophically high case fatality rate to still kill millions and millions of people and to cause tremendous harm globally to people, to communities, to economies. It doesn't have to be something that is like Ebola, where, you know, you see a majority of people who get sick die from it. And actually, viruses like that, they can cause big epidemics for sure. But, you know, there's not a lot of viruses that are transmitted by the respiratory route which is one of the reasons why the COVID pandemic has been so destructive and it has impacted so many people. It's a lot easier to control viruses that aren't being transmitted in the air that you breathe. There's also viruses that are not coronaviruses that don't necessarily even cause primarily respiratory disease like Nipah virus. It's in another family of viruses, but it can have as much as a 50% mortality rate. Can you say more about that one? Because I think people aren't as familiar with that. Yeah, so Nipah virus is actually transmitted from bats and from pigs. Pigs get it from the bats and they can transmit it to people. It also can be spread person to person, but fortunately it's not as efficiently transmitted. And Nipah is spread by the respiratory route, but it is primarily deadly when it causes encephalitis. So it actually causes a brain disease. If anybody's familiar with the movie Contagion, that fictional virus was based on a more transmissible version of Nipah virus. Now, Nipah virus keeps me up at night as well as, as its cousin Hendra because they do have such a high mortality rate and they can potentially be transmitted by the respiratory route. 
a more transmissible MERS coronavirus, Nipah, Hendra, H5N1, highly pathogenic avian influenza, which also is not very efficiently transmitted from person to person, could be potentially catastrophic. And I'm not exaggerating by saying that a virus like that, that spread like COVID around the world, could potentially have civilization ending consequences. I mean, can you imagine what would have happened if 50% of the people who got SARS coronavirus 2 died from it? If we were having problems with, at the highest, a 2 to 3% case fatality rate, our hospitals are overwhelmed. Even now, with vaccines and the mortality rate is even lower, we're still seeing so much transmission that we're still seeing huge burden on our healthcare system. Imagine what that would be like if we were talking about a virus that was as transmissible, but killed up to half the people that get it. That would be absolutely catastrophic and potentially an existential threat to our civilization. So you're not speaking metaphorically when you say it keeps you up at night. As a virologist, it actually keeps you up at night. Yeah, I I don't think about it sometimes if I want to sleep. (laughs) Well, that, I guess, raises a question. If this is a concern to you as a scientist and other scientists looking at what could come down the road, how do we prepare for that? How do we protect against it should it arise? Well, this is why I'm glad to be a virologist, actually, because even though I know about all of these really scary viruses that are out there, we also do this work so that we can develop countermeasures. And that means developing new antiviral drugs, developing new ways to treat these emerging viruses. And one thing I think that is going to be very impactful is we know what a lot of these virus families are. So like I said, Nipah and Hendra, the Hennepa viruses, and there's many, many other viruses. There's 25 families of viruses, I think, that can cause disease in humans. You know, some of them have known pathogens, but any of them could potentially produce a virus that would infect people, be capable of human-to-human transmission and cause a pandemic. The problem is trying to figure out which of those viruses are the threat. Here at my own research institution and uh, many other virologists around the world are working on this too. There's a push to make vaccines that can recognize viruses based on which family they're in rather than working on individual viruses. So for example, people are developing pan-influenza vaccines that would cover any influenza that you would get exposed to and not just the three strains that are in this year's flu shot or pan-coronavirus vaccine that could protect against both SARS-1 and SARS-2, as well as maybe MERS and any other novel coronaviruses that might emerge. And I think that this is one really powerful way to approach countermeasures, because if you can vaccinate people who are at risk of being exposed to these viruses, you have a stockpile of these vaccines ready to distribute should an outbreak happen, you could contain that very early before it became a pandemic, and you could potentially contain viruses that we don't even actually know about yet. What is the timeline, do you think, for something like that to be developed, produced, and stockpiled? Certainly not overnight. Many of these vaccines are currently still in development. There are some clinical trials, however, going on. And one of the challenges, I think, that people don't always appreciate is that it's not just developing the vaccine and then testing it. You have to get it all the way to the point where it has regulatory approval and you have to be able to fund manufacturing so that you can actually make the vaccine in large enough numbers. So it's really important that we not only develop these things as scientists, 
but that we actually also follow through to make sure that we're doing the right kind of testing, we're doing safety testing, and we have processes in place that can allow us to actually manufacture vaccines that could be used in an emergency immediately. And when you make the case for this with policymakers, politicians who are in charge of spending the money on this, do you find that there's urgency to do it in the absence of an emergency? So this is one of the great challenges to doing any type of pandemic prevention or preparedness work. If you're actually successful at preventing a pandemic, it looks like you're not doing anything because nothing happens. A pandemic doesn't happen. And it's very difficult to maintain, you know, from one Congress to the next, from one president to the next. It's very difficult to justify spending lots and lots of taxpayer money on something that seems like it's not doing anything. And things are probably worse than they've ever been right now because it has been so politicized. Public health itself, pandemic prevention, and virology research have all been sort of uniquely politicized and in many cases demonized. And that also makes it very difficult to make the case that we need continued funding, we need continued support for this type of work, and we actually need a lot more of it than less when, you know, people are kind of over the pandemic and people aren't dying in the same numbers that they were at the beginning of 2020 or during some of the subsequent waves before we had vaccination and there was a lot more population immunity, it's really hard to make the case that we should continue to be investing in this. But what people, I think, really need to know, what politicians need to know, is that this is an investment in our future, not only the future of our country and our public health, but also the future of our economy. And because we do live in a global world, this is really an investment in the future of the entire global population of the human race. And I think that people really need to be reminded of that as well as educated on what the benefits are of doing this type of work. Dr. Angela Rasmussen, thanks so much for talking to me today. Thanks for having me, Wes. Anytime. When we come back, what the U.S. government has learned from the COVID-19 pandemic. From Silicon Valley to Wall Street, the promise and perils of artificial intelligence are playing out on the world stage. But what will the next phase of AI adoption look like? Which companies from big tech to startups will dominate? And where do the risks and unintended consequences lie? I'm Emily Chang. Join me at Bloomberg Tech in San Francisco, May 9th, to answer many of the industry's burning questions. Alongside SNAP's Evan Spiegel, Xbox President Sarah Bond, OpenAI's Brad Lightcap, top researcher Dr. Fei-Fei Li of Stanford, and many more. More details and just a few tickets left at Bloomberg.com slash TechSF. I'm here with Bloomberg's biosecurity reporter, Riley Griffin, and White House reporter Josh Wingrove. Riley and Josh, thanks so much for being here. Thanks for having us. Thanks for having us. We just heard from virologist Angie Rasmussen, who told us about the increasing threat of virus transmission from animals to humans. Riley, when you talk to scientists and policymakers, what do they say worries them most about how the next global pandemic might go? 
So I actually want to take you back to 2019 when BARDA, which sits within the Assistant Secretary for Preparedness and Response, which is now the Administration for Strategic Preparedness and Response, presented on biological threats. They called it the Wheel of Misfortune. And it was like the Wheel of Fortune, but instead of numbers, you had biological threats. And on it were things like anthrax, smallpox, plague, botulism, Ebola Sudan, Ebola Zaire, Marburg virus, some things that you may have heard come up. The World Health Organization also releases its own list of priority pathogens. And, you know, on it are similar things. Marburg, Lassa fever, MERS and SARS, those relatives of COVID-19, Zika. So I can name specific pathogens for U.S., but I think partly what scares me is the unknown pathogens, those that we don't have names for or might be new iterations of viruses we may have seen before. And the way to deal with that is something we like to call in this world biosurveillance. Think of it as like a weather map or forecasting for infectious disease. And what we need to get to is really taking a pathogen agnostic approach to pandemic preparedness. What does that mean? That means not preparing for one individual threat. One of the big shortfalls of our preparedness for COVID-19 is that all these years, we've been preparing for pandemic influenza. Think the 1918 flu, also sometimes called the Spanish flu, that killed up to 100 million people. We've been preparing for that for years because that was really the last big, epic pandemic. All of our presidents, going back to Bill Clinton, he actually, in the late 1990s, he read a fictional book about a bioterrorism attack called the Cobra event, and it spurred him to create the Strategic National Stockpile, which stockpiles all of our medicines and PPE and so forth. And so it's... the protective gear that we all uh, started wearing during the the pandemic. And every president since then has had their own kind of plan. But many of these plans haven't been implemented, and a lot of them have been geared at pandemic influenza. So I think we need to think a little bit broader. Because these are all aimed at fighting the last pandemic instead of looking forward to the one we don't know about. Exactly. And the Biden administration, they released their own plan. First, it was the American Pandemic Preparedness Plan, and now it's uh, transformed into the National Biodefense Strategy. They lay out their own strategy for combating naturally occurring, accidental, and man-made biological threats. So it's, it's quite comprehensive. But what we're still seeing missing is real implementation and resources put to this. They've requested $88 billion in mandatory funding, but they're not necessarily likely to get it. And so what do you do with all these documents but not a lot of action? What was made so clear early in the pandemic is that we did not really have a system for this or a plan for this. And I think those are two separate things. And the plan question is now hanging over us. What can we do to prepare for the next one? But a lot of the things that really hobbled the response in the U.S. in particular, which namely a a patchwork of 50 different systems. One for each state. That isn't going away. And that will continue to hobble whatever we decide as a country to do about COVID, which right now is not a lot, and whatever the country decides to do for the next thing. Riley, you mentioned man-made biological threats. What exactly are those and what is the concern there? The concern there is that viruses, bacteria, other pathogens could be weaponized and used either inappropriately or for nefarious intent, or that 
legitimate research done in academic and private sector laboratories and, and in government facilities might have accidental consequences. And so I actually just got back from Geneva from going to the Biological Weapons Convention, a review conference for this international treaty that bans a class of weapons of mass destruction. This is an ever-present threat and an increasing threat as biology and our understanding of it advances and as a lot of these tools become cheaper and more accessible. And when scientists look at their best guesses about what to prepare for. You know, like every year there's the flu vaccine and they take the best guess of which strains might be the ones that hit us all and we hope that we hit a year where they guessed right and when they don't, we get a bad flu year. When they're preparing for the future, how do you guess? You just named like 15 different things that could kill us all. How do you know which is the one that we should be preparing for most and which one would be a little bit further down the list? Science sometimes I think is an art. You know, scientific stakeholders convene in the U.N. and they sometimes have to resort to their best guess. If we had had this conversation in the middle of 2019 and we'd asked ourselves then what we needed or what was around the corner, I do think we now have clarity and more information and pathways than we did before. That is a silver lining of the (laughs) few years that we've been through. One is that We didn't really know how the early warning system would work, right? And with China, it really didn't work. And that will be the focus of congressional hearings with the Republicans holding the House in the next couple of years. But, like, it did work with Omicron. And so now there are systems in place where public health agencies can sound the alarm and it's taken seriously. When you say the early warning system, you mean they saw it coming and were able to act in timely fashion. Right. Joe Biden started talking about Omicron. I think it was like a Thanksgiving vacation in Nantucket a year ago, you know, like because South Africa and countries in Southern Africa had picked it up and sounded the alarm. Now, that kind of stuff is critical and, you know, is a carryover of the COVID experience. Another thing, for example, is like COVAX and how they got vaccines out. That was totally unprecedented. And if we, God forbid, ever have to go through that again, there is now a system because it is actually really annoying and legally thorny to shove vaccines out across international borders with dueling regulatory agencies and what have you. So there are silver linings to having gone through this. Questions that we would have had in this exact conversation pre-COVID do have answers now, but so many others do not have answers now. And to Riley's point, it's like, have public health experts sort of shot their shot? Like, have they sapped or worn thin the patients of the public, many of whom couldn't tell you, for instance, what the CDC recommendations are right now, because it's changed so much and they've tuned out. So there is a silver lining on the one hand. But on the other hand, I wonder whether even though we have a playbook, that might not help as much if people aren't willing to listen to it. Riley and Josh tell us about the planning happening for the next pandemic when we return. From Silicon Valley to Wall Street, the promise and perils of artificial intelligence are playing out on the world stage. But what will the next phase of AI adoption look like? Which companies from big tech to startups will dominate? And where do the risks and unintended consequences lie? I'm Emily Chang. Join me at Bloomberg Tech in San Francisco, May 9th, to answer many of the industry's burning questions. Alongside SNAP's Evan Spiegel, Xbox President Sarah Bond, OpenAI's Brad Lightcap, 
top researcher Dr. Fei-Fei Li of Stanford, and many more. More details and just a few tickets left at Bloomberg.com slash TechSF. Josh, you said that if we had the benefit of foresight in 2019 when this was coming down in December, maybe things would have been different. Riley was talking about how every president had prepared or tried to prepare for this, so those preparations actually didn't work. How then does the administration, do all of the agencies involved in this sort of work, figure out how to prevent what Riley is describing? Well, I think there's a lot of them who are doing that work right now. The question I have is whether they'll have the money to do anything about it, right? Like early on, just to go back west to those early days of COVID, you know, Trump really did take it seriously for a while. There was not enough PPE. There was not enough supplies. There were not enough ventilators. There were hospital ships outside New York. Remember this. And like that was all under Trump. I think we sort of like forget, you know, that there was an election throughout this. Uh, and then he stopped uh, really caring to that extent for a range of reasons. And so now what we have is this question of like what's left over and where to go from it. As we stand here, the administration is begging for money from Congress that they are not getting for COVID response. And that is for stuff to deal with developing vaccines. You mentioned the flu shot that we get yearly. That's what they want to do with COVID. The first version of that has had really abysmally low uptake. And there's not really money in the system right now to develop next year's annual COVID-type flu shot because they just haven't allocated anything. They also have no money to buy more vaccines or, you know, buy more Paxlovid, which we give to more severe cases when they get it to minimize their symptoms. And so the current question of what are we going to do about the next pandemic, I'm kind of worried about what we're going to do about the current pandemic we're still in. There is just simply no appetite in Congress as of now to fund anything for it. And that at some point, you have to think is going to start being a problem. Riley, it's kind of an important point. If we can't get enough money to pay for a pandemic that's still happening right now, where is the resolve to pay for something that we can't see, don't know which it is, and don't know when it's going to come? I'm going to give an answer you might not expect. I think it's coming out of the Defense Department. I think you're seeing an increase in interest from other stakeholders beyond the obvious ones at the Department of Health and Human Services take up this mandate. I think the intelligence community has an increased focus and appetite, partially at the direction of the Biden administration, and I think the Defense Department does as well. And what does that look like? How, how does when the Pentagon takes over the preservation of the human race, what does that look like? Well, I'll give you one example. Recently, my colleague Madison Muller and I broke a story where the Department of Defense had cut a deal with Moderna for messenger RNA vaccines for Ebola viruses and other threats. This wasn't a function of congressional funding for pandemic preparedness. This was DOD saying this is something that affects troops and we have the money to deploy and we don't need to go through all those layers of bureaucracy and approval to get this done. They just did it. I think there's a lot more work like that happening. If you look to the intelligence community, they're developing tools for bioattribution. That is actually to look at a pathogen, to look at its genome, to sequence it, to look into the DNA and say, can we see human signatures? Meaning, can we look at the DNA of a virus and determine whether or not it was naturally occurring or that this was a function of a human touch? 
these are quiet things that are happening outside of the Department of Health and Human Service enterprise that are in the name of biodefense, biosecurity. And so I am watching this closely because I think a lot of that work, if it's going to get done, is going to shift in that direction. Josh, as a political matter, I suppose as a policy matter, too, I don't know, it feels kind of weird to let the Department of Defense and the intelligence community lead the way in this sort of thing. Is that how, say, the Biden administration wants this to play out? How any White House wants it to play out? Getting funding for DOD is often a lot easier than getting funding for HHS. So if DOD can be the fig leaf for funding for this, the Biden administration will, I think, probably be okay with that. They could sleep at night if that's the case. But DOD has been a battleground on this already. I mean, Mm -hmm. we just saw a big throwdown fight over the NDAA, which is a defense funding bill. And one of the concessions made in that was eliminating the vaccine requirement for service members. I mean, this has been a partisan fight until now. And, you know, what is the goal here, right? I think this is a question that gets different answers these days around COVID. Like, a lot of public health experts would like the numbers to be a lot lower than they are now. Um, I mean, I'm sitting here, you know, a positive COVID case, working from home, talking to you guys uh, with relatively mild symptoms. Dedication to the cause, Josh. We wish you were here, Josh. (laughs) I'm feeling fine. Thank you. I've dodged it for, you know, however many years and finally got me. But like cases like mine are probably in the eyes of like the Biden people, kind of what they want. If you're going to have a COVID case, have it in someone who has mild symptoms because they got vaccinated and they stay away from others, and that's it. And so when it comes to the question of other pandemics and ending this one, there is disagreement on like what the victory line is, where the goal line is. You know, it's hard to be optimistic when you're thinking about doomsday threats like this. And Josh and I have been in the trenches together covering COVID since the very beginning. Politics are at play. They've always been at play. But there are public health officials that have made this their life work, and they have been at the CDC for decades. They were thinking about COVID well before COVID happened. Coronaviruses have been on the radar. We've seen coronaviruses before. The CDC is undergoing a reorganization right now, an overhaul, if you will, to become more of a responsive agency. And there will be workforce changes and structural changes that will potentially outlive the tenure of Director Walensky, who currently runs the CDC. And you interviewed Dr. Walensky back in November of last year. Let's hear what she had to say about some of those changes. So one of the things that we learned is that we need to be more nimble about how we develop and deliver our science. We have to communicate that not to necessarily only public health officials and to scientists, but we need to communicate it to the American public. We need easy to understand, easy to implement policies that are dedicated in science, devoted and, and, and based on science, but that we can really convey in a simple policy message. Riley, you said there are structural changes happening at the CDC to minimize the threat of the next pandemic. What are they? I'll give you a really simple example. I don't know if a lot of people know this, but over at the CDC, the folks working on COVID had to volunteer to do so. They actually raised their hand, right? They were working potentially on HIV or birth defects. People had to raise their hand to go over and work on COVID. And that caused a lot of issues in terms of the speed of the response. If you needed three epidemiologists to work on something, you had to scan the agency and find them. 
One change that they're making is that you're going to deploy CDC staff like troops. They're going to give their availability months in advance. And if a crisis emerges, the CDC will readily deploy them. So that's a readiness change. There are other changes we can outline. But the point is, there are these cultural and operational things that are just going to be flipped, if you will, to make it more of a responsive agency rather than the academic, bureaucratic, scientific kind of guidance entity that it's been for so long. Josh, one of the things we saw in the pandemic was how in the U.S. there's 50 different states, so 50 different responses, some better than others. Another thing we saw was every country had its own response. Have governments learned from COVID that there's value to coordinating and cooperating from the beginning? Or are we going to see something similar the next time uh, sort of hell breaks loose? The optimistic answer is yes, some things work better. COVAX exists. COVAX is the system that we set up to help get vaccines to low and lower middle income countries when rich countries jam to the front of the line Like, if you think Ticketmaster is bad, like the COVID vaccine process buying was insane and rich people got it and poor countries did not. And so we now have a system to at least get some vaccines to poor countries. But countries fundamentally responded in kind of a everyone for themselves way. I don't know. No, I don't think it's a kumbaya moment. I think one of the real benefits of God willing not having a new pandemic, a new something, a new pathogen, a new plague over the next couple of years will be to take the temperature down so that if and when we do face another one and we do hear these warning systems from the people whose job it is to tell us and who have gone to school for years and years and years and years to be able to say, no, this is the one, that when they say that warning, that the broad public, you know, is willing to hear it. And at the international level, too, I think there will be some basic learning lessons like travel bans. They're not very effective. Just because you're blocking flights from one country doesn't mean a virus is going to enter through another. So there have been some successes and some obvious failures throughout the pandemic. And you got to think that those very equipped public health officials that Josh is describing are taking note of what didn't work. Riley, when you look down the road, which is your entire job, what are you watching for? What should people listening to this podcast be looking out for? I'll give you a present answer and a a little bit down the road. I mean, I think we're still grappling with a lot. Josh said he alluded to some of the issues with the lack of funding for current pandemic response. We've got COVID. We've got polio. We've got Ebola. We've got RSV. We've got MPOX. Our hands are full right now. And I think there might be some pandemic fatigue, but that doesn't mean that there aren't active threats that demand active response. So I'm thinking about that quite often. Down the road, I'm following this question of biosurveillance. What are the tools that are cropping up out of the public and private sector to better detect these threats, right? And there are a number of companies that are working on this. The technology is fascinating, and it's accelerating really quickly. Even if the government isn't investing in it, the private sector seems to see uh, market opportunity here. This looks like wastewater surveillance. It looks like putting in detection in airports, which are these hubs of global travel where a lot of disease comes through. And so seeing what sticks and what continues to have investment beyond this cycle of panic and neglect 
I think will be a, a really telling portrait of the future. If we can continue to buy into these technologies, we will be better equipped. Those early warning signals are the most important thing. You can't catch it late. You got to catch it early. And so where government, academia, and the private sector will rise to that opportunity and create a better weather map for infectious disease, that's what I'm looking for. I don't want to leave you, Wes, too sad. I, you know, I'm a Debbie Downer, apparently, right now. You know, <laughs> well, you do have COVID, man, so you're COVID forgiving. Case. Yeah, I know. You know, I'm trying to be upbeat. He's Look, living like it. The price of the unfortunate threats and the distrust that has stewed up with medical professionals is that lives were saved, right? A recent study showed 3 million lives were saved in the U.S. because of the COVID vaccines. They got a vaccine to development, to production, into pharmacies, in incredible time. That stretched over two administrations that agreed on virtually nothing else. There is positive that comes from that. And you would hope that, God forbid, we deal with something else like this again, that all that would be true as well. So, you know, as we deal with the fallout, like it's those lives saved, it's those cases avoided, and as a result, those long COVID cases avoided, that is the reason that these health professionals who are getting heckled and like bullied on social media get up every day. Riley Griffin, Josh Wingrove, thanks for taking the time to talk to me today. Thanks for having us. Always fun to be with you, Josh. Thank you, Wes. Oh, Riley, swimming in your wake as always. But Wes, I try to bring some optimism. You can check out more of Riley and Josh's reporting about preparations for the next pandemic at Bloomberg.com. Thanks for listening to us here at The Big Take, the daily podcast from Bloomberg and iHeartRadio. For more shows from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app. Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen. Read today's story and subscribe to our daily newsletter at Bloomberg.com slash Big Take. And we'd love to hear from you. Email us with questions or comments to Big Take at Bloomberg.net. The supervising producer of The Big Take is... Vicki Vergolina. Our senior producer is... Catherine Fink. Our producers are... Mo Barrow. And... Michael Falero. Hilda Garcia. Is our engineer... Original music by Leo Sidrin. I'm Wes Kosova. We'll be back tomorrow with another Big Take. From Silicon Valley to Wall Street, the promise and perils of artificial intelligence are playing out on the world stage. But what will the next phase of AI adoption look like? Which companies from big tech to startups will dominate? And where do the risks and unintended consequences lie? I'm Emily Chang. Join me at Bloomberg Tech in San Francisco, May 9th, to answer many of the industry's burning questions. Alongside SNAP's Evan Spiegel, Xbox President Sarah Bond, OpenAI's Brad Lightcap, top researcher Dr. Fei-Fei Li of Stanford, and many more. More details and just a few tickets left at Bloomberg.com slash TechSF.